from the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Betty Gilpin. She plays Debbie Liberty Bell Egan on the Netflix wrestling comedy Glow. One of the, the best parts of this job is that it really feels like two shows in one and, and two genres in one that, you know, some days are very grounded, kind of whispery kitchen sink dramatic scenes and then the next day you're playing to the mezzanine and making the craziest faces and using your body like a flailing starfish (laughs) slamming it into the ground. Betty reminisces about some of her first ever acting roles and onset mishaps. She also opens up about the one thing that her husband has been doing this past month that is driving her insane. Here's my conversation with Betty Gilpin. So, Betty, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a moment this morning when I woke up where for like a few seconds, I forgot all that was going on outside. Have you had those moments yet where for a brief moment you forget what's going on? A little bit. I mean, I find in watching TV, I do a little bit and I've been watching a lot of stuff for some reason, like you never know what's going to depress you. Like big group scenes can be really sad. But I think that um, for some reason, watching things in a different time period, th- that removal makes me happier and, and lets me escape a little bit more. I just finished Plot Against America, which is so incredible. And my dear friend Zoe Kazan is giving, I think, the performance of the year in that show. I've been watching Mrs. America and loving that and being so embarrassed at how little of feminist history I actually know. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's it's also like acting porn. Everyone on that is incredible. And I've been listening to this podcast, You Must Remember This. Um, it's uh, yeah about old Hollywood, and I'm obsessed with it. So for some reason, thinking about oldie-timey people makes me think, you know, there's been shit shows before, there'll be shit shows another time too. Well, I mean, this sort of comes at the right time. There was just an announcement that Netflix is making a show about life in quarantine with Genji Cohen heading it. And I was going to ask you before that, if we were to make a TV show about your life in quarantine, like what moments would make for good TV? Like what would be the opening scene in that pilot? I feel like mine would be a montage of cleaning baseboards, but yours might be different. <laughs> Well, my husband is in now online nursing school right now. So a lot of my quarantine involves him on Zoom nursing classes, speaking in his very loud speaking voice about fecal matter and, you know, CPR. So that's been interesting. And then he also, we are New Yorkers, but we got, um, we were about a week and a half into shooting Glow here in L.A., when the lockdown happened. So we're out stuck out here. And my husband has been bird watching to a point where it was quirky has now crossed over into perhaps an illness. And if I hear one more long description of a hawk or a crow, you're going to hear about me on the news. (laughs) That's too good. Well, as you mentioned, Glow was was about to start production on its fourth and final season. What do you remember about the sort of call to halt things? And had you been wondering about when they were going to make the decision? You know, it was such an interesting picture of our business because 
a set can be so solipsistic in that it just feels like the only world that exists. And, you know, we're working 16 hour days in crazy costumes with no pants on and uh, everything feels so important. And so we were shooting and, you know, people were saying, I bet we're going to be locked out. And I was like, I, I really can't think about that right now. I, I have lines to memorize. And of course, you know, <laughs> my stupid little ego got served papers the next morning. <laughs> but yeah, I where I'm staying has a view of the studio. And so sometimes I wave to all our weird little carny costumes collecting dust across the valley. How are you feeling about saying goodbye? Is there some sort of comfort in knowing that you have a little more time now before you have to do it? Or does it just prolong the inevitable and the grief? I mean, we did a, a cast Zoom the other day. We were all weeping, missing each other. I mean, we're all going to be friends for the rest of our lives. We're bonded in such a strange, uh, the combination of feminism and wrestling. It's like we can't, we'll never be able to get rid of each other, but it's going to be very bittersweet. You know, something about it being four years, it's like high school and this is our senior year and it feels similar where you're like, oh, I can't wait to graduate, but also I'm going to be sobbing into a lily at graduation. What are you going to miss about Debbie and Liberty Bell? How would you say they have shaped you as an actress? I mean, I'm so spoiled with this job in so many ways. You know, one of the, the best parts of this job is that it really feels like two shows in one and two genres in one that, you know, some days are very grounded, kind of whispery kitchen sink dramatic scenes. And then the next day you're playing to the mezzanine and making the craziest faces and using your body like a flailing starfish <laughs> slamming it into the ground. You know, I've noticed that on different jobs during the hiatus between seasons. I'm like, oh yeah, this genre is fun, but wouldn't it be funner if the next day of shooting, we got to totally turn it on its ear like we do in Glow. And I'll, I'll really miss that. Well, let's talk about season three. I mean, the wrestling act moved to Las Vegas and it sort of opened up new opportunities for the women, but it sort of also brought into focus the divide or how far they've come from the lives they used to lead. And we see this with Debbie, who's really grown into a businesswoman. And, you know, she's sort of finding her position of power and realizing that there's great sacrifice in that. What did you enjoy about her journey in season three? Our showrunners, Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch, I have known for over a decade from New York and when, when they were starting out as playwrights. And in many ways, I think season three is a real love letter to theater in that, you know, it feels like this removed bubble from your life where you're living Groundhog Day over and over again in a very silly and excruciating way. And, you know, the, the women in Glow are doing the same show every night and it's, you know, makes them go a little insane, which was really fun to play with. And also because it's Vegas and it's removed from their lives. I think Ruth and Debbie were able to sort of treat their friendship like it was like a little affair that they could just sort of conveniently forget their circumstances a little bit and their past and just sort of be each other's ally, you know, not without complication or eye rolls. But I think in many ways, Debbie this season is kind of at a fork in the road where you're seeing her wonder if her believing in herself as a professional woman and having ambitions, like, is it worth all this 
pain and being uncomfortable and feeling like she's failing all the time and no one's listening to her. And I think life offers her the opportunity to, hey, you could just be an actress or you could just marry this rich rancher or you could just like be arm candy. And wouldn't that be easier? And I think there's a part of her brain that's, that agrees. Like, yeah, that would be easier. And maybe I do want to do that. But she also has these ambitions that she just doesn't know really how to execute those dreams, you know, in 1986. So I think her relationship with Tex is kind of an example of that. It's like, oh, is she drawn to him because she wants to be arm candy or because she wants to be him? (laughs) I think it's both. You also got to work with Gina Davis this season. And for those who don't know, in the series, she plays a former showgirl turned entertainment director of the casino where the women have their wrestling show. What was that like? Give me a Gina story. (laughs) I mean, I think it's kind of strangely meta that she was on our show in many ways. You know, she's such an icon of that period of time. And also for Debbie to have a bunch of scenes with her, you know, like I was saying, Debbie being at such a fork in the road of, you know, do I want to be arm candy actress or do I want to be this? kind of powerful CEO version of myself that I think I could be, but I just don't have a clear path towards it. You know, Gina herself is such an example of someone who came onto the scene in Tootsie and no one had ever seen a more beautiful woman. And then she was like, by the way, I'm also a literal genius, like Mensa level genius. And I'm an Olympic archer in a twist. I mean, just you know, kind of told the world, like, just so you know, my brain is coming for the ride just as much as my gorgeous self. And, you know, I think that that even though we're making huge strides now in 2020, I think it's still a hard lesson for me to tell myself. I, I, you know, I think it's, it's hard to drown out society's loud voice when it tells you the things that are valuable about you are the things that are going to expire and to have your kind of grayer, scarier intellectual goals or ambitious goals take the wheel over arm candy stuff that's sometimes easier. Sometimes it's it's a scary thing to bet on yourself. And working with Gina? Yeah, she's incredible. I mean, but you would never know, you know, you think like I've been listening to all these podcasts about old Hollywood, like 40s and 50s stars and their behavior, <laughs> how insane they were in the best way. And Gina, you, she behaves as if she's like the sweetest Girl Scout troop leader, like the kindest, most wonderful. You would never think like, oh, this is a major movie star, which she totally is. But, you know, I was I was pretty shaking nervous to be around her. And she was like, come on, let's let's get to work. (laughs) That scene where she's performing on stage in that outfit where I'm like, what? I know. I know. I I was rewatching some of season three in in preparation to do some interviews and stuff because it feels like years ago that we filmed it. Like, what happens again? And when the threesome came on, I was like, oh, my God. And this isn't the end of the episode. What happens at how do we follow up the threesome? Oh, right. Gina Davis in a showgirls costume. Yes, of course. That's the only thing that could follow that. It's incredible. We were dying. And that was a room full of, you know, ladies and drag queens. And so all those reactions that you see in that episode are 100% real. We were screaming for her. So good. Well, so much of what people love about the show is its depiction of friendship and in particular Ruth and and uh, 
Debbie's friendship. And I'm sort of curious to get your thoughts on, you know, how the layers of vulnerability compare in friendship scenes versus romantic scenes. Hmm. I would say that I've been very, uh, I've never done something like this where I really have had very little romantic scenes in Glow in terms of like a a long storyline. It's really been mostly with me and Ruth is the main, you know, focal point of emotion in Debbie's life. And I think it's such an interesting exercise as an actor where I think there's so many more layers to those scenes than romantic scenes that I've played because, you know, sex just complicates things. And but it also kind of simplifies things sometimes where you're like, well, if I'm not attracted to this person or I'm not in love with this person, then goodbye. But, you know, I think that Debbie and Ruth are sort of cursed to each other where like they have this love for each other that won't die as much as Debbie wants it to sometimes. And I feel like sometimes the scenes are like, I'm reaching out for her hand while trying to shiv her under the table with the other hand. And, uh, you know, line by line, that feels like it changes. And those are such fun scenes to play. Well, it's such a fun season. There's the costumes, the big hair, the makeup, But there's like a sort of moment of reprieve when you guys go camping. It's sort of like everyone sort of strips down both physically and like emotionally. Talk to me about what it was like filming that episode and to sort of see Debbie in this way. Yeah, I think that that episode was so incredible to shoot. Also, you know, I think that we were sort of, like I said before, when we were right before the pandemic, just being in a for this season when you're in a studio when it's just recycled air all day long and you're work you know you come into work at 4:30 in the morning and leave work at you know 9:30 at night and time stops existing and i think it was the same i hear it's the same about vegas where you're like wait what day is it what time is it and so to do a scene totally in the middle of nature and very dramatic nature i think for Debbie, I think it was a chance to sort of step back and say, what is it that I want and what am I doing? And uh, I can't do this. You know, I feel like a, a lot of my female friends right now in this quarantine are doing that. But like we're just taught so often, I think, as women to just like keep going, keep going, get that opportunity, do what you can, like run, 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 run before time runs out. And I think taking a step back and saying, am I leading the life that I want? Am I Am I on the path that I would have chosen if I had time to choose and a breath to choose? I think that's kind of what, to me, episode six is about. And hopefully what this quarantine is about. (laughs) Has there been a scene on GLOW that didn't make it onto the screen that you really wish had, either from last season or any season? Um, The only one I can think of is, I remember season one, I had a breastfeeding scene where they, they show some of the scene. I think it's in the second episode, but they used to really show the nudity uh, of breastfeeding. And they put all this special effects makeup all over my boobs to make it look like, and I think, I think it got cut because we went way too far. It just looks like I had a medieval disease. Um, but I was so excited. I was like, this is feminist nudity and the world needs to see. And it was like apparently too grotesque. <laughs> well, and this is a time where 
I think we, or maybe it's just me, that I wish that I had some wacky outfits or could really go all out because I know no one can see me because I'm not going outside. What costume would you be wearing in quarantine if you had the ability to? I mean, my husband loves Halloween and I am always like, I dress like a circus performer for my job from five o'clock in the morning to 10 at night. I want to wear my pajamas. So I, right now, my sleepy Irish Catholic self is so happy in this very costume, which is pants made of cotton that is made the size of a mainsail. It's, um, this is my costume. This is my skin. This is Betty Gilpin. That's usually the way I roll too. So I, I feel you. I don't know where the final season is going to take us, but would you ever consider a Debbie spinoff? And what would you want to explore in that? Oh, a Debbie spinoff. I think Debbie, I think the Debbie spinoff would be really cool to do like in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. Like however old Valerie Cherish is in the comeback. I guess she's like 50s. I, I, I feel like Debbie's version of the comeback, just like her in her Brentwood house, like holding a goblet and being like, any calls? Um, just her kind of delusions of grandeur is that's, that's the kind of tone I'm interested in period for anything. (laughs) I desperately want that to be made. We have to make this happen. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) You're slated to play Ann Coulter in the upcoming season of impeachment American crime story and production was also stopped on that, right? Yes. Yeah. How did you sort of dive into the headspace for that role? Like, what was the research like? Any particular clips you found illuminating? Well, you know, the uh, impeachment, this series takes place in the 90s, of course. And I I did the, I think, erroneous thing of starting with Ann Coulter stuff now and just got kind of mired in that and sort of focused my attention on 90s and Coulter, but I've been uh, in Coulter world and it's a it's a wild place. <laughs> I'm so excited to play this part, especially with all of those actors. I just can't. And the writing is so insanely good. It's so good. So, yeah, I'm very excited about that. Whenever that will be. Have you ever played a real person before? And what is the challenge that you're finding in doing it? I haven't done it yet, so we'll see. Maybe I'll find it very challenging. But I, you know, she's got such a distinctive voice, and I'm trying to get that down, and I'm freaking my husband out. <laughs> You're giving him that, and he's giving you bird watching. Yeah, maybe that should be, I'll be like, if, <laughs> I, I'm going to start describing crows and hawks as Ann Coulter. <laughs> well, you've guest starred on a number of notable TV shows early in your career. There was like Fringe, Law and Order, The Good Wife. Was there one that you were most excited about because it felt like, okay, I'm a legit actor now? What memory stands out from being on that set? I think Law and Order was probably the highlight just because as a New York actor, I got really excited about it. And, you know, my parents, when I was growing up, did Law and Orders, and it just felt kind of like a rite of passage. And I did four of them, and I, I died, I think I've died th- th- on three of them. I survived one, but the one I survived, I smoked a lot of crack, so I don't think she, her life went too well after after we left her. But yeah, I was the one I was a victim on, Fran Drescher was my mom, which in what world is that correct casting? <laughs> I like, look like a pilgrim. 
there was a, a scene where they found me naked in an oil barrel and then they zipped me up in a, there's a scene where they zipped me up in a body bag and we shot that scene right before lunch on location and they zipped me up and they're, you know, worried about friend Josh or worried about all the celebrities. <laughs> They're like, zip up. Okay, that's lunch. And I hear like, van door slam, van door slam, van door slam. Like, everyone's like getting it, voices farther and farther away. And then I hear like one PA in the distance go, oh my God. And then like quick feet on gravel towards me, towards me, towards me. And then like zip, <laughs> sunlight bursting in like, hey, let's get you out of there. It's like, thanks. <laughs> it was horrifying. Was there like <laughs> another TV show that you auditioned for that you really wanted to get? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, there are certainly ones that I'm like, thank God I didn't get that job that I sobbed over at the time. But then there were, you know, I got called back for Girls and for Orange is the New Black and Veep. Uh, oh gosh, there are millions and millions. I mean, I've been on Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of auditions. <laughs> I'm 33. I've been auditioning since I was 19. And, you know, it doesn't end. I made, I made my Ann Coulter tape in a bathroom. <laughs> the show ponyness of it all, it never ends, babe. Well, I'm also curious, just like, especially when you're sort of new to that whole world and these are shows like, you know, you were talking about Law and Order where they've been on for seasons and, you know, the actors know it like the back of their hand and you're sort of coming into it sort of new and, you know, green to their world. How do you sort of navigate? Because not only are you having to act in the scene and make that believable, but you're also having to sort of act like you belong to this world or that you're comfortable on this set. That was a huge adjustment for me that I feel like only in the past couple of years have I realized, oh, I feeling comfortable on a set does 80% of the work. And when someone feels nervous or they're needing to please the people around them or audition for the job they already have in the first couple takes and then do their ideas in the fourth take if they get one. That was me for so long. And particularly on those shows like cop shows or hospital shows, you know, the series regulars, even though they're giving great performances, they often have the easier job. Like when I was on Nurse Jackie playing a doctor, like I my lines were like very well written, but more like, what time? How are you feeling? And it's the guest stars that are having to sob or play emergencies or really high stakes or do the real heavy lifting. And I do remember there was one time in a show that shall remain nameless where I had, to, it was one of my first jobs ever. And I had to do a big emotional scene. And the person, my scene partner was like, he was, the, you know, number one on the call sheet. He said, I don't want them to use any of my coverage in the wide shot. So just say your lines in order. I'm not going to talk. And so for my first scene, I had to just say my li like this dramatic emotional. I had to be like, Stacy. Yeah, I guess. Good point. Like it felt insane. And he had whispered it to me. So no one knew what <laughs> it's like. Could you not have made an announcement? So I don't look like a crazy person. It was wild. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. But like you can't, you can't, you know, that kind of behavior is, I feel, not as prevalent anymore. But who boy. <laughs> and when you had like that first big credit to your name, how does your family respond? Are you guys all sort of around the TV all together and like recording it? Like, what do you remember about that first one? Well, it's strange because, you know, my parents are actors, so it's not 
you know, they're very proud and excited, but they're also really proud and excited of my brother who works for E-Trade. <laughs> I, I remember I, t- I made the mistake of uh, the first law and order I did. My husband, then boyfriend was like, let's have uh, a bunch of your friends over and we'll all watch it together. I was like, that's a great idea. And the second I came on screen and started talking, I was like, I'm going to go to the bathroom, excuse me. And then like closed the door, turned out the lights. Like it was darkness. I was, I was so neurotic and just emotional. My friend was like, Hey, you okay in there? Like, don't look at me. (laughs) That's too good. Well, before I wrap things, you know, we've been asking our um, guests to ask questions of our other guests and our previous episode had Miss Christine Baranski, yes. who you know. Oh my God, Christine is a legend, a living legend. I would love to know how Betty, as a young actress, see, I've, I've already had most of my career in me, but as a young actress looking forward, how would she like at best for this to land? And does she suffer an intense anxiety about the nature of the business. It was always crazy and it was always unpredictable, but does she have any sense of where it's going or does it keep her up at night? <laughs> oh gosh, that's such a good question. Leave it to Baranski. I was recently listening to a podcast with the author George Saunders and he was talking about how a really great metaphor for the world in his words, where it's like, we're all just Barbies and Kens on top of a sleeping tiger and sometimes the tiger wakes up and it can, especially in Hollywood, it can feel like our Barbies and Ken's logistics and triumphs and failures are the most important thing that are happening. But the tiger's way more important than Barbie getting her crown. And, you know, I was in this movie, The Hunt, that came out Friday the 13th and then theaters were closed that Sunday, I think. And it was the first movie I'd ever been the lead in. And and then the tiger woke up. And I just think it was kind of the exact sort of slap in the face perspective shift that I needed. I think I was getting a little too worried about Barbie's pageant crown. And I need to start thinking about the tiger more because that's actually also as a boring side effect makes better acting work anyway, when you're not thinking about how you hate your ears and want to validate the wrongs of your childhood. Think about the tiger. (laughs) But are you sort of worried about how is my job going to change? Like, what do I do with a sex scene now? Like what's going to make me feel comfortable? Like, should they take actors temperatures before everything? Or are you sort of taking it day by day, not really thinking about that yet? I think that our work has, involved crossing strange boundaries that most people don't cross anyway (laughs) before and probably will again. And I think we're a resilient community and I think that we're going to figure it out. And I have the utmost faith in people who are much smarter than me are going to figure out, you know, what I should do in order to get my tits out on screen. And I am willing to do that for my country. And you give the best quotes, Betty. So our next guest will be Julia Garner from Ozark. So do you have a question for her? It doesn't have to be related to the show. Oh, I just think she's the future. I I just, okay, what do I want to ask her? What is your dream role look like for when you are 60 years old? 
because right now I feel like she is in this insane pocket of being such an incredible actor and so gorgeously like a Disney princess in a teacup. She's so beautiful. And I just think like, it's almost a distraction from how fucking good she is. Excuse my language. <laughs> so I just think like, her best work is she's just going to work forever and ever. She's amazing. <laughs> we think so too. We'll, we'll pass along the question. Betty, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy all the bird watching. <laughs> That's it for the sixth episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Monson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guest for this podcast. Come back next week. We're talking to actress Julia Garner. I had the Missouri accent down. I went to the audition. There were like 15 other girls in like a small waiting room that was like the size of like kind of a biggish closet. It was so small and paper thin walls. Every single girl that went in the room saying the lines that I was going to say in like 15 minutes, five minutes or whatever, none of them had an accent. Oh my God. If you like Can't Stop Watching, please, I hope you do. Subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.